Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, if you follow the legislature closely, and chances are if you listen to a podcast like this, you probably do, you know that a lot happened this year in terms of education policy. A lot of money going into some new initiatives and some enhanced initiatives. So how is that going to work, and how is that going to play out, and what are schools going to do with all of this money for employee benefits, for literacy, for teacher pay? To get a sense of where we go from here, I sat down this week with three of Idaho's education stakeholders, Matt Compton of the Idaho Education Association, Andy Grover of the Idaho Association of School Administrators, and Quinn Perry of the Idaho School Boards Association. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you all for joining us this week for the podcast. So much happened this past legislative session, and I feel like listeners probably have a pretty good idea of what the legislature did in terms of education policy. I'm most interested in where we go from here and how you implement this. What are the biggest challenges going forward when you look at what passed and what's on your plate now? And I think, Quinn, why don't I start with you and then Matt and then Andy? Sure. I think one of the bigger, I don't want to call it a challenge, but maybe more of a, a, a mist or a, a correction is probably going to be health insurance. Um, I think we largely saw a lot of rhetoric coming from the legislature that, you know, this is going to be so great for school districts to be able to join uh, the state's health insurance plan. And you know, so a lot of us have been doing some education and related to how the funding actually works because they did give a significant increase to health insurance for school district employees. But it may not be enough to join uh, the state's health insurance plan just because of how school funding is structured. Uh, they did give an increase of about $105 million. So I think you're going to see a lot of school districts get better health insurance plans for their employees, but I don't know the likelihood of many joining the state plan. I think first and foremost, it's important to recognize that you know the $110 million in additional um, discretionary money for insurance is huge. This is going to be um, uh, life-altering in some cases for educators in the state. Uh, and I think what we're experiencing right now on the ground in districts are negotiations, which will help uh, the distribution um, of, of those resources. There are going to be districts in eastern Idaho who uh, will be saving a considerable amount of money on insurance. Uh, and it really is a district to district to make a decision on, on how to how to uh, make those resources go as far as they possibly can. Um, the, the first, you know, the, the governor was really explicit in saying that this is to supplement your insurance that you have now, improve upon your insurance that you have now, move to the plan or something else. And I think that's what all districts are going to be uh, working towards between now and the end of negotiations. Mm -hmm. So Andy, from the administrator's perspective. Well, and, and I agree with both uh, Matt and Quinn on those issues. I think the overall question is, is how do we distribute funds when some of them are one-time funds, right, coming from the federal government versus uh, funds that are ongoing, like the $105 million we're talking about insurance, and how that ties into you know, the overall budget when uh, you know, currently we had our enrollment rule vetoed. Uh, which changes some of the funding in many of our districts. So just figuring out how to use these dollars, both new dollars and what we currently uh, receive and how to push those through to make sure that we are increasing salaries for our teachers and our staff. And 
how does the salary work? I mean, we've got this two years of career ladder, partly federally funded, partly state funded. How do you see that working out, man? I think I think we're I think we're all on the same page here, uh, <laughs> recognizing that the the. Um, that this is some one-time money that needs to be treated more as a bonus rather than um, ongoing money into perpetuity. Uh, we've had this conversation as stakeholders since the governor sort of unrolled this plan. So I don't think that anybody's under the misnomer that you know this is a two-year installment of the career ladder. It's one plus uh, some additional resources to, to help Educators. Yeah, I think you'll see folks using it more of maybe like a stipend, right, where uh, leadership premiums were, of course, phased out this year. And, and that's something that we did get behind because we knew that the incentive, the trade-off for that, of course, was um, an increase in health insurance benefits. But I think, yeah, the, the one-time federal money, I can see it being maybe used as a stipend. Um, but in, in any case, I think it helps, you know, still show educators and pupil service staff like a thank you for getting us through kind of those tough two years of the pandemic and um you know it, it's well deserved for sure what are you hearing andy from your members about how they're going to take that career ladder money especially that federal money which is a one-time payment it's not sustainable funding in the classic sense of how you would fund teacher salaries so again, with 115 different districts, we're hearing 115 different ways currently. And so, you know, a lot of folks are waiting for the State Department to do their tour over the next couple of weeks uh, to get some input from Julie Oberly and, and her office on what's the best way to use federal funds to either support a teacher ladder or do a one-time bonus. And Andy, I'll start with you on this, but I, I wanna hear from all three of you. We've had this uh, incentive bill become law, and I don't want to call it a rural incentive because it's not just rural, it's for teachers in high poverty mm -hmm. districts as well, and it's mm -hmm. not just a loan forgiveness program because it can be used for multiple purposes. Andy, how do you see that working as somebody who was a former superintendent in a rural district yourself? Well, I, I think that that's probably one of my favorite bills that passed this year. Um, just because it gives an opportunity for rural districts to have something, you know, to give to teachers that have come to their districts when many districts around them, many of the larger districts pay so much more. So being able to pay off some of that student debt and, and do it over time, I think is really exciting for those districts. I think the big question is, is what is the implementation of it and, and what does it exactly mean as it rolls out? I think we've been trying to address an attraction entertaining teachers for a long time, and this was one of the task force recommendations. It's great to see it come to fruition. I certainly love to see additional resources be uh, put towards it instead of just a, a cap. Uh, I think that there's a, a lot of educators who are willing and interested in taking advantage of this proposal. Yeah, I'm going to ditto everything that they said and add that one thing that I think Senate Bill 1290, which is the bill we're talking about, did is it brought an innovative solution to the table. 
Um, you know, we know that there's a retention issue, particularly in rural and high need schools and districts. And this just provides one incentive where somebody could come and they could, yeah, maybe pay down a loan or maybe they could go get an additional credit or a professional development that might help them with a specific need in that school. And, you know, I attended a great uh, workforce partnership where a lot of people came to the table to say, what do we need to do to help fix the retention issue? And a lot of people feel very connected to a rural community as long as they have the resources to stay there, right? If they have housing that they can live in and they have a wage that they can live on. So I think that bill is going to greatly enhance an innovative solution, which hopefully can be you know, enhanced down the road to help both attract and retain educators and, and staff of all kinds to rural and high-need schools. What do all three of you expect to see unfold now on literacy slash all-day kindergarten? I mean, we've already seen West Ada and Twin Falls just come out in the past few days with all-day kindergarten plans just in the few days since the legislature adjourned. How is that money going to be used and how much of it's going to be all-day kinder and how much of it is going to be other programs like we've seen with the literacy money already? Uh, I will tell you that I think many of us were hesitant to call the literacy intervention a full day kindergarten bill. And the reason why is because literacy intervention money is to target struggling readers K through three. Now, both when uh, there was historic investments back in, what, 2019, and now uh, the investments in literacy is going to help support full-day kindergarten programs, tuition-free full-day kindergarten programs is what I should say. And I am very excited to see folks stepping up. But you would be a fool uh, if you dumped all of that money into kindergarten because 50% of the funding is now dependent on your K-3 readers moving towards proficiency. So I think you'll see a mixture, uh, like Andy said, right? It's going to vary across the, the needs of the community, what the board thinks and the community thinks is best. And I think you'll see kindergarten programs. You might see after school summer reading programs, uh, additional reading coaches, um, specialty curriculum and programs that can help uh, target those uh, readers. It may also support dyslexia, which is another very important topic from the session. So uh, that's what I hear school leaders talking about. But um, we are excited about the expansion of full day kindergarten. Uh, but I just don't know that you'll see it pop up in every community. Yeah, I think I think I would echo that and, and also add that we're not looking at it as a full, full day kindergarten bill either. I mean, we're going to receive half the kindergarten funding that we receive under our normal appropriations anyway. Uh, and this bill will allow districts that want to go there to have some extra money to do that. But as, as Quinn stated, it's K through three, and we have to make sure we're addressing the needs of all those students all the way through. And it's, it's quite a bit of new money. Um, but we still have questions on how that, second 50% and, you know, that rationale of how they got to distribute those funds is actually going to work after we've done it for a year and make sure that, you know, we're not, we're not penalizing poverty districts and our poverty students who need the most help. I was going to say, I mean, it's a fundamental shift in how that money is mm -hmm. going to be distributed. Mm -hmm. And that has to give you some pause. All three of you as we go forward into a new uh, 
in the program. Yeah. I think maybe I'm a nerd here, but I'm really excited about the second piece of that legislation um, that requires the transparency in uh, the levies. I think what we're going to see is districts um, showing their cards on how much of operational expenses they're actually paying for. These are not supplemental levies, but they're absolutely operational levies that had they not passed, uh, districts would be going Mm -hmm. without. Absolutely. Uh, doubling down on that. And yes, uh, Matt is correct. I mean, um, schools are already transparent about how their levy money is being utilized. But if they want us to put on the ballot exactly where uh, state funding falls short, then that's something that we're happy to do. But to answer, yeah, yes, I mean, I do think that the literacy formula does give us some pause. I mean, the the influx of funding this year is is it doesn't matter, right? That everyone's getting an increase in funding regardless. But um, if you penalize folks who are kids, essentially, who are not able to move forward by removing funding, you know, that it does seem a little bit backwards at times. And I think um, that really was a compromise bill. I don't know that every person at the table walked away, um, you know, 100% happy. But uh, as we say, like everything in the legislative uh, process is the art of negotiation. And uh, we got we got it done. And, it, and it's now going to become law on July 1st. And we're going to do our best to make sure that our programs have the stable, consistent funding that we need in order to provide good programs to kids. So, And I guess I'm a bit of a nerd, too, because I'm excited <laughs> to see that kind of reporting in advance of elections because, you know, we write about supplemental levies four times a year, and it varies sometimes what we get in terms of the information from districts because, you know, it, it, you know it's 115 districts have, you know, and 90-some districts with levies and, you know, mm-hmm. some are much more clear and much more upfront about where the money is going to be going. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in that <laughs> as well. I <I'd> <laughs> How do all three of you see the Empowering Parents Grants rollout? Because at some level, you don't have a whole lot of control over it as trustees, as administrators, as teachers. It's really up to parents. But is there a nexus between what parents are going to hope to do with that money and what you're hoping to see as stakeholder groups in terms of improving educational outcomes. We're already working on a program, some kind of like PR program to share with educators uh, so that our, our members know what services can be provided to students, so those wraparound services so that students can be as successful as possible, ensuring that the educators have the tools to educate families on what uh, what sort of wraparound services can be made available. We're, we're really excited about that. Yeah, I think we are too. And it was a wildly popular program when it rolled out back in 2021. Was it 2020? I can't, I, I, time is a blur. Now. Okay, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, ago, you know, when like that came out two years ago, it was wildly popular. Um, I think Matt's right. I think educators will play a key role in helping, you know, ensure that we're targeting the most high need kids that their parents can help apply and help, you know, provide certain services that they may not be getting from their public school or they may be getting and it needs to be enhanced a little bit more. So, um, yeah, we're excited to see that go through and, um, you know, just again, acknowledging that, uh, this is a partnership, this whole, this whole public education thing is a partnership between school leaders and, uh, parents. Do you see it potentially that way too, Andy, that it, it will help 
foster partnerships between parents and school administrators? I think if we look back on how it was implemented last time, you know, many of our school districts were the hub to push that information out to parents and have them, you know, even come in and apply at the school. And I think that will continue to happen. And I also think that, you know, once we see where parents are going with those dollars, you know, because they do have to report what they do with those dollars, we can also adjust what we're doing at schools if we see a big need, you know, if there's lots of money being spent on one particular area or something like that, then we can really address you know, a need maybe we're missing in the public education world or, or be able to see what kind of data comes from where those dollars are spent. But I, I think it's a great opportunity because, again, we're really trying to address with this those poverty kids who need the most help. And this one directly affects each of those families and gives parents more choice on how to help their kids be better in school. What happens now from all three of your perspectives with standards, now that the new standards have been approved, what's next? We stopped talking about standards. There's <laughs> 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 that. Yes. No, for real, though, um, I think it's time to shift the focus. Um, legislators and, and people who were very critical of the previous standards kind of you know, all right, we're going this direction now, we're doing it. Um, You know, I think next step, I mean, I hope the next step is some sort of true comparability study about what changed and where so that, you know, educators, school administrators and school board members are prepared to implement those in the way that 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 we need to for kids to be successful. And, And that can look you know, and I think a lot of us testified to this saying, you know, we just need to know at the end of the day, like, there are dramatic changes. Do we have the fiscal resources to buy and adopt new curriculum? Do we have the financial resources and support to provide, you know, adequate professional development for our staff? And so I think it's a, it's still, um, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, so I think the next step we'll see is, you know, what really were the the true tangible changes. What does it mean when a teacher's flipping through their lesson plans, you know, and, and what changed? And um, so I think it'll be a little bit of a process, but um, hopefully we can move on from the standards discussion, which has dominated what? 10 years. 10 yeah. years. Yeah. I was, wow. Even before my time in this, in this realm. So. Yeah. And, and again, I would just, agree with everything that's been said uh, mostly with Matt it's time to move on we've spent a lot of time and wasted a lot of dollars having these conversations you know and, and we already have curriculum directors that are pouring through in our larger districts that are pouring through these new standards to see you know really give us an idea of what those differences are going to be and most of our rural districts are going to rely a lot on our our larger districts in this capacity because they have the ability to go through and look at these standards you know, and see what are the major changes, Um, you know, but our standards have been pretty rigorous for the last little while, and we've created curriculum that's pretty rigorous. So, you know, while we want to know those answers, uh, you know, we do feel that what we're doing currently will meet the needs of of where these standards have gone. I'll I'll take the cheekiness aside and and say it was was amazing. It It was appropriate to have educators as part of the review committee as well. It, it just doubled down. It, it uh, reaffirms that educators are the folks who should be drafting the standards, writing the standards, uh, and reviewing the standards and making adjustments when necessary. So I think one question I have for all three of you, which is less of an implementation question, and I, and I really appreciate 
getting down into the nitty gritty of what happens now that the session is over. But I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask all three of you about this session from a 30,000 foot level. I mean, you, you all three have been in committee meetings for the better part of three months. And it feels like it wasn't exactly what we might have expected after 2021. I mean, 2021, we had a teacher salary bill die on the House floor because of concerns about you know, indoctrination in the schools. We had the Lieutenant Governor's Task Force last summer. And this year, it seems like a lot of that emotion and a lot of that you know, visceral debate was focused on libraries and not on K-12. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised by that? I, I was a little surprised, particularly coming out of uh, the the summer indoctrination task force. I figured there would be a number of pieces of legislation that those task force members had drafted, worked with LSO, uh, that they were going to bring forth to continue the uh, assault on public schools. It just manifested itself in its attack on public school librarians this time. Yeah, I'll agree with Matt. I, I went in. I went in with a little bit of a gloomy outlook, I guess, um, this legislative session. And it definitely felt more positive and productive than it did last year. I think last year at the end, a lot of us looked around the table like, what did we actually do this year that was good for kids? And this year, I feel strongly that there were multiple things that happened that really is going to be a beneficial to to students, to kids, to families, to uh, school districts. And so... You know, I, I guess I wasn't so surprised about the sort of the shift in the narrative to uh, librarians. And um, I just think fear is a really motivating factor for folks. And, um, you know, I never got to see the super secret folder that apparently had floated around the House floor, but I vehemently reject any claims that school librarians, educators, administrators are attempting to groom or indoctrinate students. I just think that that is an egregious claim that has little to no fact basis behind it. Um, you know, I know that there's supposedly an interim committee to study library mm-hmm. materials, and um, I suppose it may be a lot like the indoctrination task force, where you see one-off examples that you know didn't really come to fruition. And um, I'm also think you're going to see a lot of people stand up again for librarians, just like they did for their public schools and for educators, because uh, just like public schools, libraries are essential uh, things in our communities. I also want to tag the fact that I think last session, uh, board members, administrators, and educators were really not able to go into the legislature or mm-hmm. into the Capitol and do any kind of lobbying. And right. this time, the, the education community, it was safe for us to go and, and be present. Um, so um, there was a, 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 an audience in front of the lawmakers this time where uh, they, were, they knew that this was an election year and that there was mm-hmm. some accountability. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I think that a lot of that stuff was squashed early on. I mean, we had uh, President Green from U of I that started right off, you know, with his conversations about the amount of money they spent on outside agencies to come in and find if there were issues of CRT. And then we heard that from all the other universities, right? And and they came out and said, look, we spent all this taxpayer money chasing ghosts. And, and I think that that was really set the tone for you know, we now have data to show that this isn't occurring in every one of our classrooms as being, that has been, you know, stated, especially from last year, 
And and we heard that for the first couple of weeks of the session, if you remember, we heard from the state board president who talked about it. And, and every group that kind of got up said, you know, for what we've been able to to collect data on and search, this has not been a, a widespread issue. And I think that really set the tone for the rest of the season or for the rest of the session to be able to say, you know, we're going to talk about things that are going to make a difference, not just put fear into everyone's mind. And how do you build on that? Knowing the next session, you don't know exactly who's going to be there, but you know you're going to have a lot of new people there. Mm-hmm. How does that build on it? I mean, I think um, <laughs> one thing that's always very depressing about a two-year election cycle is how much education it takes to even policymakers to understand such a vast system like the K-12 and higher education system, right? I mean, understanding the difference between what a school board does and a superintendent does, I mean, that doesn't come natural to most people and it shouldn't. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated process. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen too many mailers yet focusing on these kind of hot topic issues, but I'm sure that it will be a campaign issue. And again, it's our jobs, um, you know, as the association representatives to remind folks about the great work that's happening and to redirect them to the real positive change that can happen and, and occur in policymaking and not just focusing on these, you know, hot topic political discussions of the week. We're working with educators around the state to to reach out to the candidates who are likely going to walk the halls of the Capitol and establish themselves as the education professionals. So when new lawmakers need or seek information, uh, they're, they're talking to experts and not policy think tanks. And I would just add to that, you know, because the funding formula and how schools do business is so complicated, we have to have time to be able to work with these new legislators just to give them some background knowledge of where we're headed when we talk about all the different kinds of uh, effects that may come from a bill that's put into place. Mm-hmm. Well, that's almost nine months away, so we'll get to talk about that more <laughs> for some future podcast. But yeah. until then, Quinn, Matt, Andy, thank you for taking the time to uh, walk us through this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Again, that was Matt Compton of the Idaho Education Association. Andy Grover of the Idaho Association of School Administrators, and Quinn Perry of the Idaho School Boards Association. So along the lines of our conversation this week, I took a closer look at all-day kindergarten and what happens now that the legislature has put $46.6 million of new money into literacy. We've already seen the West Ada and Twin Falls school districts announce plans to go to all-day kindergarten this fall. How is that going to work, and what can we expect to see elsewhere in the state? That's what I tried to look at in my piece on Thursday. And if you missed it from a few days ago, Blake Jones has a really good piece looking at the insurance plan and how the money that's going into employee benefits, how that might be spent and how that might play out in schools across the state. Those stories are at our homepage, at oednews.org. And a lot more at the webpage. It is election season, and the state superintendent's candidates were in two forums this week in Idaho Falls and Twin Falls. Devin Bodkin and Blake Jones combined, uh, pulled their resources and covered those two forums. We have a story for you on that. I take a closer look at what's going on at North Idaho College. The accreditation issue continues to unfold up in the panhandle. I have the latest for you there. 
So check us out on the homepage at idahoednews.org and get all of the latest stories on education policy and education politics. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And join me next week for another podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week. Bye.